Please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. We are continuing our study of the book of Daniel this morning, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 14. We began last week meditating on this section and really just tried to do a a broad overview of what is happening. Daniel 7 is considered the, the hinge upon which all of Daniel is, all of Daniel's message turns. It is a, it is a turning point in the book. It is not just a turning point in the kind of genre. We saw that there's a major shift. We've been looking at narrative and historical writing in Daniel 1 to 6, but in chapter 7 and onward, it shifts dramatically. But it's not only a, a, a shift in the prophetic and apocalyptic genre that is being utilized here, it is a a shift of perspective from past to the future. Daniel 7 is is picked up. The images that we find here are picked up again, and they will trace them all the way through the end of the book of Daniel. And then the Apostle John himself in his book of Revelation is going to pick up the images that we find even starting here and he is, going to, he is going to interpret them and he is going to unpack them in the book of Revelation. And we'll come back to some of those things in the weeks to come. But what we find in Daniel chapter 7 is a broad picture of history. If Daniel 1 to 6 is us looking at the individual life and experience of Daniel, or in the case of Daniel chapter 2, his friends, Daniel chapter 7 and onward now steps back. It is a panoramic view of all of history, and it is writ large. It is beautiful. It is, it is intimidating. There are a lot of symbols, a lot of images that are presented here that will require us to to meditate on a little bit, to to study, to think through. And we should not be too too intimidated by them. We can find these images in the Old Testament. Daniel isn't creating things that would not have been understood to his original audience. He is seeing these things, and the Lord isn't giving giving him random symbols. Rather, these are picking up Old Testament symbols, and then they get picked up and they get interpreted later in Daniel And then again, later, even onward in by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. But all of this is about two kingdoms, two kinds of kings. Kingdoms of the earth and the kingdom of God. The kings of the earth and the king, the eternal king, the true king. We saw last week that the kings of the earth are are beastly. Before I I read, why don't we join together in prayer asking for the Lord to bless and strengthen us that we may study his word and understand what he has for us here. Father, I pray that you will give us humility as we enter in to the study of your word that we may hear what you have to say. That we may understand, oh God, your word to Daniel, to his audience, and invariably to us, that we may hope in you, O Lord, that we may live confidently in you, our King. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 
the first thing that we find is a description of what we'll call the wants and future kingdoms of the earth, the wants and future kingdoms. We see in Daniel chapter 7, we'll review, uh, let me read verses 1 to 8 of this section. In the first year of Belshazzar, so in chapter 6, this, this, this uh, passage actually comes about 15 years prior to chapter, I'm sorry, to what we even read in chapter 5 of Daniel. And so in the first year, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the summary of it, the main points, the main facts, telling the, the, the main point of it all. That is, what we read here is not everything. What we have here is the summary of his dream, the most important parts. And Daniel spoke, saying, I I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were there before it, and it had ten horns. Now, as I was considering the horns, there came up another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots." And there in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. The images here are are shifting. They are wild. They are difficult for us to grasp. We are meant to picture the beasts here. They They are given and described fairly vividly. When we find these beasts, these beastly kingdoms, are rebellious. We saw this last week. I just want to review it quickly rising out of the sea. This, this picture of a, a chaotic sea is a picture often in the ancient world, and we see it in the Old Testament before, this, before Daniel. It is a picture of a place of chaos, a place of rebellion. And this is where these beasts arise out of, the sea of humanity, chaotic and rebellious against God. And, and it is the Lord stirring up the sea, causing these beasts to come up. They are rebellious kingdoms. But more than that, they are dreadful. They are terrifying. They are destructive kingdoms. The second beast, we are told, has three bloody ribs in its mouth. The fourth beast is described as stamping out everything, destructive, terrifying, exceedingly strong. They are complex kingdoms. That is, they they are, they're an amalgamation of different animals, aren't they? I mean, even as you read through it, even as we were reading through it, he doesn't tell us that the first was a lion. Every now and then, if you, are, if you will go online or if you pick up a book that's trying to study this thing, they'll have a picture of what the beast looked like. Well, the reality is we don't know. 
How do we don't know? Well, we're not told it looked like a lion. Looked, it was a lion. We told it looked like a lion, which means in some way, it didn't look like a lion. It's almost as if he's saying the closest animal that we have to compare with this beast that I saw, this first beast, is what? Is a lion. It looked like a lion. Not a lion, but looked like one. But it was like a lion that had wings. More than that, you find this with the second beast, another beast, a second, like a bear. The third beast was like a leopard. The fourth beast is different than all of them. There is no comparison. Each of them are an amalgamation. It, on one level, it, picks, it pictures for us that each of these beasts are in some way ceremonially unclean. In the Old Testament, in the Levitical law, there were combinations of beasts. You could not eat them. They were unclean before God. What we have here are those beasts. Unclean, unable to approach before God. Unholy. But even more than that, these are successive. That is, they, successive kingdoms. That is, they come one after another. We see that in, in how they are described. Between the first and the second beast, we're not told. But it, it is implied that the second beast comes after the first beast. That seems to be obvious. Well, what's implied in that second beast is made clear in the third and fourth beast. We're told, after this, and then again, after this with the fourth beast, there is a succession of kingdoms or a succession of beasts that are rising up one after the other, which gives the, the depiction, and we saw last week how the angel interprets this for Daniel, telling him these beasts are kings and kingdoms. And so what we have here are a successive pattern of kingdoms that are rising, four kingdoms that are being described. They are not initially simultaneous, ruling all at once, but they come one after another. And we can say with some confidence that these are historical kingdoms. Almost everyone has agreed that the first kingdom is the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom in which Daniel, uh, in which Daniel is presently living when he receives this vision. It's the first years of Belteshar. It's 15, about 15 years prior to when the Babylonian kingdom will be destroyed. And so we can say with some confidence, almost everyone has agreed that it fits that kingdom. Part of the reason we do that is because in the Old Testament, two primary images are used over and over and over again. And in some places, like Jeremiah chapter 29, the images of lion and uh, eagles are combined to describe the nation of Babylon. Lions often used in the ancient world to depict power, royalty, glory, might. And Babylon was especially favorable towards the depiction of a lion. In fact, you, if you were to go to London, the Museum of London, you will find in the Museum of London there is a, uh, a number of Babylonian artifacts that they have been able to recover and put back together. And there is an uh, image of the Ishtar Gate, which we know had depictions of lions. We also know that Babylon had depictions of itself as winged lions. More than this, that second beast was like a bear. And there is enormous controversy over this. The majority of scholars will argue that the second beast is the Median kingdom, and then the third beast would be the Persian kingdom. I, I don't believe that's the case. 
The reason I don't believe that's the case, there are a number of reasons, but let me give you just two. Both in Scripture and in history, that is, those historical documents that we have been able to recover through archaeology, we can find no real record of two separate kingdoms between the Medo kingdom and the Persian kingdom. These are not two separate kingdoms. They are always combined. And, as I, and that's what I believe them to be here. It is the Medo-Persian kingdom. There are a lot of reasons for that, but those are just two. The primary reason why scholars have argued that they are separate kingdoms rather than combined is because it fits with a theory of Daniel that rather than writing during the time of Babylon, as he is described here, they argue that he is writing centuries later after these events have already taken place. You see that? So they'll argue it's Babylon, then Medo, then, then, and then Persia, then Greece, and they'll argue that it's really not Daniel who's writing, but someone who's claiming to be Daniel, and his writing is actually what gets put here. Huge number of problems with that. The preeminent one being that Daniel is the one who is described here as being the author. He himself lists himself as the author. But here we find Daniel, the, the second beast, is the Medo-Persian kingdom. Part of what fits that is that historically one of the things that we know is that the Medo-Persian kingdom had three great victories. They, they if, if Babylon could be depicted as a winged lion, a winged lion that was made to stand on its feet and a heart given to it, it, it pictures all, the, the wings plucked off, it almost pictures the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar there. The, the, the power of a bear and the fierceness of a bear pictures better what the Medo-Persian army looked like. They conquered, but not in the same way that the Babylonians conquered. They conquered, they were known for enormous armies that were slow moving. And they had three great victories. Victories over Libya, victories over the Babylonian Empire, and victories over Egypt itself. Those three great victories over those kingdoms which seem to correspond with the three ribs. More than this, we, the third kingdom fits with what we know of to be the, the Greek kingdom. You see that a, a leopard, verse 6, there was another beast like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. As best we can tell, it pictures that this beast above all was swift and it fits with what we know to be the way that Alexander the Great conquered, who in 13 years, at the age of 20, he becomes this king and he sets off on this, this incredible uh, military exploit in which he conquers and his dominion goes over far greater parts of the world than anyone had ever been able to conquer all at one time. And in 13 short years until he dies, he is... He is conquering without anybody able to stop him. He's swift. Four wings, perhaps four directions, four heads, perhaps signifying the, the four heads, or we might say after the kingdom, uh, the Greek kingdom, Alexander Great's empire falls away, or it, after he dies, it is divided up into four other kingdoms with four other kings governing those four parts. And it was quite possible that that is what those four heads are referring to. And then we come to the fourth kingdom, 
which is different in kind than every other kingdom. It's different in that it is not like anything else that we know. It is not like any other known creature. It's different in the way it destroys. It's different in its appetite for violence and oppression. It's different in its pride and arrogance. These are historical kingdoms that are being referred to. But I will argue that even as these four beasts are picturing historical kingdoms, I believe that they are, these four beasts are picturing something even beyond these four kingdoms. That is, they are picturing kingdoms of all humanity, all human kingdoms, all human nations. Let me explain that for just a moment. We get a sense in verse 8 that this fourth kingdom isn't just Rome, the historical nation and empire of Rome. Because what we find here at the end of verse 7 and all of verse 8 doesn't correspond with what we know to Roman history. We're told this beast, uh, different from all the beasts that were before it, but we're told it has ten horns. That is, these horns are, horns are all the way through the scriptures, they are pictures of uh, power, of might, of kings and nations. It has ten horns. And as I was considering the horns, and there was, there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Here are ten nations, perhaps, most likely ten kings that are being pictured, or ten could be a symbolic number, picturing a number of kings and nations. We don't know, but I, I think we can take it ten kings, ten, ten nations, whatever it is, one king coming up, rising up, conquering three, three others, taking dominance, preeminence, and speaking arrogant, terrible things of God against God. But this doesn't fit with what we know of Roman history. Rome did have a set of kings before they became a republic, but they didn't have ten. And then they become a republic, and then we know that they enter into the time, the empire, with Caesars, and there are more than ten Caesars. And so nothing from what we know of Roman history quite fits this depiction that we have here. And the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John both seem to read this description of this person in the future as one who is still yet to come, one who the Apostle Paul will refer to as the Antichrist. That is, that one who above all and beyond all defies and rebels against God openly. So even as he is describing historical ancient Rome, future to Daniel, historical to us, we need to have one eye looking forward. But then look at me at verses 11 and 12. It's, this is another clue that what we have here is more than just historical kingdoms. That is, these four historical kingdoms. These four historical kingdoms point to something beyond themselves. Verse 11. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning fire. Here we have the destruction of that fourth kingdom, which is still yet to come. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, 
They had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So in some sense, they still exist, though their power and dominion is away. And I believe John the Apostle interprets Daniel 7, verses 11 and 12, in a specific way. And we can find that we'll come to another time when we come back to this. But he does so in Revelation 19 and 20. I'll make a case for that at another juncture. But here what we seem to find is that these, these are historical kingdoms. But yet even these historical kingdoms are be pointing to beyond themselves. Here's the point. It's not just that these four historical kingdoms are, are terrible and oppressive and unjust and ungodly. The point seems to be that the people of God in every age can always expect, can always expect that there is going to be an increase, uh, that, that human government is always going to oppose the people of God at every point. It is always going to increase and become more and more ungodly. Daniel responds to this vision with sobriety, terror. And I think part of how you and I need to view this is to understand part of what Daniel is, part of what the Lord is trying to help Daniel see is to upend some of the confusion that we have in our day and age. As if we, we can sometimes confuse advancements in technology, advancements in science, as if these things mean that human nations and human history is progressing and getting better. We are better than they were 200 years ago. Well, why? Well, we have this and we have, we have indoor plumbing. Praise the Lord for indoor plumbing. Praise the Lord for heating and air conditioning. Praise the Lord for many of the things that we can do in computers. But do not confuse advancements in technology with the advancement of good, goodness and righteousness and justice. What we have, these four kingdoms, there seems to be, an in, rather than an, a, a growing or increasing righteousness, rather they begin this descent into depravity. This is the direction of all human nations. Many of you have expressed frustration in our current world. It feels like things are getting worse. You are seeing on a small scale what Daniel is describing on a large scale. Human nations, human governments are not, even as God has appointed them for specific functions, and even though they do many wonderful things as God has permitted them and calls them to do, that because they are full of sinners, because they are full of people who rebel against God, all human nations, all human governments are going to increasingly, over time, be shaped by that rebellion. This ought to give us pause about the overall direction of human governments and human leaders. This means we, we ought not to be surprised at the hostility of the world to Christian faith to those who make it a priority to follow Jesus. Don't be surprised when suffering comes your way. This is what the Lord has told us about. More than this, 
we need to remember that whatever good things we may accomplish in the world will be short-lived. And Daniel is investing his life in the kingdoms of his time. He was, he was a, a part of the Babylonian government, and he would be a part of the Medo-Persian government. He served, and he served faithfully, and he served well. So this, isn't, this message isn't coming to him saying, get out, don't serve, don't work, don't advance the, the flourishing of the kingdoms, don't seek the good of those around you. It's not that. It is a message to help us temper our expectations of what we will accomplish. If we are expecting that a politician or our participation in any form of government is going to mean a lasting and eternal turnaround for our nation or for any nation, we are going to be disappointed. Our hope is not in what we can accomplish. It's not in hope. Our hope is not in what we can do. Our hope is what Christ and God has already done. Last the overall direction of the world isn't aimed at righteousness and the glory of God. So brothers and sisters, count the cost of following Jesus. Count the cost. Christ himself will encourage those who want to follow him. He encourages them to count the cost. Why? Well, he's convinced that if we really count the cost of what it will mean to follow Christ in this world, and we have counted his glory well, then we will be convinced that whatever cost we are called to pay, it is worth it. It is worth it. These are the human kingdoms against the Lord. Those four historical kingdoms and all human governments, even those to come. But the emphasis of the chapter isn't really on the human kingdoms. It's on the eternal king. That's where the hammer falls. We are fascinated with the four beasts. But really, the emphasis is on the king and the son of man. And I know that's the emphasis. This, this, is, this is awesome. Look with me at how Daniel just lays it out. He describes the four beasts. Then he describes the we're going to see the ancient of days, the eternal king. Then he gives two little verses about how the nations of the earth and all the rebellion and, and the, that last king, that last leader, that last antichrist who opposes God with all of his heart, speaking great things against him, describes their end, their judgment, and then he gives us the coming of the Son of Man. All right? What you have there is between the king, the eternal king, and the eternal son is you have the end of all nations. It's almost like the glory on this side, the glory of God here, and the glory of the son of man here, and the end of all the nations are right somewhere in between. It's like there are barely two verses, barely even worth mentioning, just kind of sandwiched in between. Here is their judgment. What we really need to focus on is the eternal king and the eternal son of man. We see that here, verse 9 and 10. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. Now, Ancient of Days, we ought not to think of our God as being ancient in the sense that he is, that he is um, beyond proper functioning of his government. 
He here, to be the ancient of days, describes his dignity, his glory, his power. So when we read that his hair, his garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was pure like wool. We're not to, we in our day, we're all about, some of you have hair, praise the Lord. Dye your hair, don't want it to be white. In the ancient world, they desired that white hair. It was a symbol of their wisdom, a symbol not merely that they had lived long, which was a success in its own right, but a symbol that they had learned and grown. Here is the ancient of days who is royal, glorious, wise. The ancient of days, and he is seated. His garment was white as snow. He is holy. The hair of his head was like pure wool. That's his holiness. He is the only sovereign. There are many thrones, but he is the one sitting on the throne. He is the only sovereign, the only king. The nations of the world may seem to rule, but our God is in charge. He is the sovereign king. He is the holy king. But he is also the angry king. That's not a, an idea that we typically like to associate with our God. If you were with the adult Sunday school class studying the book of Nahum, you would see and perhaps even rejoice in the judgment of God over the enemies of his people. But anger is not something we tend to associate in a good way with our God. I want us to see here, he is indeed described as angry. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Now, fire is often associated with holiness through Scripture, but here, as in many other places in the Old Testament, it calls to, picture, calls to mind his, his anger, his justice. A fiery stream comes forth from before him. His anger isn't like ours. It's holy, it's just, it's wise. And, and, the, and the idea that his throne is on um, wheels and that those wheels are burning rubber, you know, so to speak, that they're on fire, the picture is that his judgment, his anger goes to the ends of the earth. There is no stopping it. It can go everywhere. He is the angry king. And he is the majestic king. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. You know, anything worth seeing is going to draw eyes. Perhaps there is someone in your neighborhood that has an incredible garden and you like to go see it. Perhaps Christmas time comes and there's someone that you know of that has a, that, that, that puts and hangs lights everywhere. They have a beautiful display. And cars seem to drive by. Some of you are those people. You drive by their homes and you watch the lights and you look at them. Some of you do that, you just drive through neighborhoods. You enjoy checking the lights out at that time of year. You go to the Grand Canyon, it is majestic, it is glorious. People from all over come to see it. Anything worth seeing is gonna draw eyes. Our God is worth seeing. 
Here, thousands of thousands come to be him. We're not supposed to read these numbers as if, all right, it is a thousand thousands ministered to him and literally 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The picture is that it's an innumerable host standing, serving, worshiping this God. He is glorious. If his anger depicts that he is dangerous and the books are going to be opened, here is a picture that he is also dazzling. But it's more than just this. It is not just the king who is now reigning. This king who the court was seated and the books are going to be opened and his judgment is going to result in the destruction of that last beast. Here it is not past tense. It is looking to the future. God's future judgment Verse 13 also pictures the future coming of the future king, of the forever king. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. He's a different kind of king. All the other beasts are described as, all the other kingdoms are described as beasts. This is like a lion, a winged lion. This is like a bear. This, this one is described as one who is like the son of man. That is, it is the emphasis is put on his humanity. Here is one who is human. Here is one who is unlike any other. But more than that, not only is he like, different from kind from all the other kingdoms, his appearance is different. All the beasts, they come from where? The sea, that place of rebellion. They come from the mass of humanity. This one comes from where? The clouds of heaven. He descends from heaven itself. This is, this is a picture of his, not, not, if Son of Man emphasizes his humanity, this emphasizes his deity. This is one unlike any other person. This is not a normal person. This being is true man, true God. And his kingdom is different. That's a different kind of kingdom. Here, his kingdom is not made up of one nationality, but all. All peoples, all nations, all languages, they serve him. And his kingdom is a forever kingdom. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Make no mistake, this king is unmistakably Jesus. Christ takes this title, Son of Man, and he applies it to himself often throughout his life. It is a, a title which confused and confounded some of those around him. Towards the end of his life, as he is being tried by Pontius Pilate, I'm sorry, by Caiaphas, the high priest, he is dragged and he is being unjustly accused 
of crimes. And he is asked by Caiaphas, the high priest, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus responds, alluding to Daniel 7, these verses. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He is in essence saying, yes, I am that one. I am the Son of God. And today, I stand before you. I stand under your judgment. But one day, you're going to stand under mine. Friends, there is coming a day when each of us will stand before Jesus and give an account to him. He will judge the nations and all people. In the end, the book's will be opened, so to speak, and you and I will be held account for every word, every thought, every deed. And the only salvation, the only hope that you and I have is not to do more. It is not to do better. But to trust in what Jesus has already done for you. Hope and trust in Jesus that's forever king. This, this image that Jesus has, I'm sorry, that Daniel is given here of the Son of Man coming is depicting that coming, that second coming of Christ before he sets up his reign on earth in the millennial kingdom. You know, Daniel is given this vision. God is intending to encourage the beleaguered people of God who have been captive for decades and have been spread out throughout the Babylonian kingdom. They are weighed, feeling the pressure of the kingdom around them, wondering, when will this end? Has God forgotten us? Is there any hope? Has our God lost? And it can feel for you and I if you watch the news or scroll through the news online, or are there newspapers anymore? Open a newspaper. It can feel as if the world is out of control. But these verses remind us of the power of our Lord. It reminds us that God, our sovereign, is king. It reminds us that he will judge the nations. And it reminds us that Christ's kingdom is coming. So you and I need to pray all the more fervently that your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To long and to hunger for the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things they'll be added unto you. We do not get all these things by aiming for all these things. We get all those things, all the good things that we need and require and much more. We get all those things not by aiming at those things, but by aiming and longing for the kingdom of Christ. Hope, oh brothers and sisters. Daniel, the Lord is trying to hit the reset button, as it were on the kingdom of God in the eyes of Daniel. On Daniel's perspective, he's trying to reorient him 
Their thinking, our thinking is too often in the short term. God isn't thinking the short term. He is thinking the long term. And while we long for the coming of Christ at any moment, and he may come for his people at any time, and it may be a long time yet. Endure hope and know that the Son of Man is coming. Oh, the nations may cause us pain in the present, but the joy of the Lord will sustain us for all futures yet to come. The powerful nations that cause us so much frustration will be brushed aside like a couple of flies out in the open field. Brothers and sisters, trust, look to God, hope in Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, we ask that you would help us to have in mind your glory, your kingship, your reign. We are too often consumed either with joy or with disappointment concerning those who sit in office. And even as we mourn, even as we get frustrated, even as we long for your kingdom to be done now, for your will to be done now, oh Father, we pray that you will give us grace that we may be sustained in the confident hope that your kingdom is coming. Oh, Father, let us look forward and rejoice in your ultimate victory over all evil. Let us long even more for the coming of our Savior. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.